giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. Do you feel like you have little control over this process? Do you want to learn about all of your birthing options? Do you understand the reasons behind policies and protocols that stand in the way of your preferences? As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being an observant Jewish mom, I take a special interest in the unique implications of this lifestyle. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthway Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Happy Birthway Podcast. Today, I'm interviewing my very own sister-in-law, Rifka Rezo, on her birth story. Rifka Rezo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start. Uh, how old is your baby? Six weeks. What number baby is he for you? Number one. Number one. He's a cute little boy. I just love him. You had your baby in January, pandemic baby. You also had a pandemic wedding, right? That's def- that's true. Yes. It's so funny because I was just telling someone about you guys and how you had a pandemic baby and how the birth was a teensy tiny little event in the house, the way it was in the olden days. But it was wonderful, right? It was on Chavez. I loved having a small breast. I never wanted to have a big breast to begin with. So that was perfect for me. Yeah, that was it was a beautiful breast. I'm glad I got to come. Um, so I was telling someone how you poor things, you had a pandemic wedding, and then you had a pandemic breast, and that person was like, oh my gosh, the pandemic is around long enough that someone who got married during the pandemic already had a baby, so it's longer than nine months. And I actually got married right at the beginning the day before, I didn't know I was going to have a small wedding. And then the next day, my mother told me, you're getting married a week early. And it was a very different wedding than I imagined, but it was great. Pretty much, I had to come to terms with it overnight. But at the end of the day, it was really nice. And I was really grateful to not get married in a backyard. It was still pretty normal, but much smaller. And a lot of people weren't there. So it was in the very, very beginning. Yeah, you guys were such sports about it. I said, if anyone coped well with it, it was you. So it was the beginning. We didn't realize how long it was going to last for. We didn't realize just how many people were going to have little backyard weddings. Literally the day before I got married, I didn't know I was going to have that wedding. It was happened very quickly. I know. I remember the week before, I kept telling my parents, like, what's going to be with the wedding? What's going to be with the wedding? And they're like, no, don't worry. It's all overhyped. Because, of course, then we did think it was all overhyped. So then you got pregnant pretty quickly after, and you guys lived in the States for a little bit, again, unplanned, but you couldn't get into Israel, which was where you were planning on settling because, again, of the pandemic. But then you finally got there in the summer. Let's start with the prenatal care in Israel. What was your experience as an American? So it's going to be different because you're you're kind of like a foreigner in Israel. You don't know the language well. You don't know the medical system well. It's not like you lived there as a married woman, as a pregnant woman. So what was your experience of the prenatal care over there? In the beginning, when I was very early pregnant, I didn't want to tell anyone I was pregnant. And I was in a foreign country, and I didn't know where to turn for care. But I also didn't want to tell anyone I was pregnant. So it was very stressful for me. 
also I had to do two weeks of quarantine and I think once I came out of quarantine I was probably 10 weeks pregnant and hadn't been seen yet so it was very stressful I wanted to make sure I had all the proper ultrasounds and things done and procedures before the end of my first trimester also you can't sign up for medical insurance and until you're actually in Israel and you go in person, but I couldn't, I had to wait two weeks. And then once you go, you have to wait till you're approved, which was like another week. So that was stressful. I didn't end up being seen probably until like the last week of my first trimester, which was stressful. But the care itself, I was not obsessed with personally. <laughs> Everyone has different experiences, but what I found to be my experience in Israel is that when you go to a doctor's office, the hours for the OBGYN are different than the hours for the nurse, for the nurses and for the blood lab. So instead of going and it being a one-stop shop where you go into the room like in America and you have the somebody take your blood, somebody take your vitals, and then the doctor come in, you have to go at all different times to make sure everything's done. I think I was only weighed like twice my entire pregnancy in Israel because sometimes I would go to my appointment, I was taking off work to do so, and the doctor would say, oh, the nurse's office isn't open now, so you can't get weighed. Or you need to do this blood test, but the blood lab hours are only for two hours in the morning, and also, this type of blood test isn't done at this location, so you have to go to another location to do so. So that was very stressful for me. I pretty much, it's pretty much a full-time job to be pregnant in Israel. I found myself running around most of the time, and for those that are working, you can't just take off all the time to get a simple blood test done. I wouldn't recommend this for everyone, but to a certain extent, I ended up neglecting my care because I just wasn't interested in running around all day to get some blood tests done. And I knew that I wanted to give birth in America, so I came back a month before my due date, five weeks. Right, I remember in the beginning you were in conflict, right? Because you had just gotten to Israel already. Yeah. And it was like you were finally where you wanted to be, where you were supposed to be. And then a few, just a few months later, you wanted to come back to the States. Being that you gave birth in January and your husband my little brother, is um, learning in Kolel, the Zman, right? For anyone that's not affiliated, the semester of Talmudical School of Yeshiva was still ongoing. So you would have to leave in the middle again, and he would have to do virtual learning again. So the timing was just difficult, but I'm glad that you're here. Yeah, so when I was making that decision, I had to dis- we had to gamble if my mother would be able to come in or not. And I didn't want to take the gamble and worked out because our flight, we left and without knowing this would happen, literally we landed in America, turned open the news and the entire Ben Gurion was shut down and it's been shut down since. So it was insane. We had no idea that was happening. There was no prior, there was no like, oh, there might be a lockdown. Usually you know that the government is contemplating that, but this time there was no warning and everything shut down the second we left. It was insane and hopefully we'll be able to get back in, but we'll see. Yeah, that's crazy. I'm so happy you made it in. And you really wanted to give birth in America. I want to just say why. Because your mother was really willing to step in and host you guys and give you tremendous postpartum and newborn support. And I think now that you have the baby, you really see the value in that. Yes, yes, definitely, 100%. Yeah, you were saying you don't know how people do it without that support. I barely did it with the support, so I can't imagine how people do it without. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult. I, I believe in it wholeheartedly. 
in past generations when everyone lived in nuclear families where there were sisters and aunts and and mothers and grandmothers, you were just able to get a better break. So I'm really happy that, especially for baby number one, you were able to have that support and um, give birth over here. So now when you transitioned from care from Israel to America, how did that go? So I kind of was waiting to come to America because I knew things would be much easier here. And when I got to my doctor, I actually used the same doctor that my mother used for eight out of her 10 kids, which was really nice. And Did he deliver you? Yeah, he delivered me. Oh, that's so special. Yeah, it was very nice. So when we, when I came to his office, they looked over my file from Israel. I sent over my records and they said, oh, you didn't do this blood test. You didn't do this. You didn't get this. I said, yeah, I didn't do any of these things. And in one day, like they just he just sent someone in and they just did everything on the spot without me having to make separate appointments for each thing at different locations at different times. Um, so that was a lot easier for me. It's just you don't have to think so much about it. In the States, different offices work differently. Some offices do have lab services in-house, like in, in the office, and other offices don't have lab services in-house. You have to go to a separate lab, but they don't have like those nurses um, hours different than the doctor's hours you come it's a one-stop shop um, most offices will have like just a general low-level ultrasound machine but some offices for higher level ultrasounds if they're a smaller office they'll send you out to somewhere else so you had a really convenient setup where you had just everything in one-stop shop right right so also another thing I forgot to mention about Israel is that your OBGYN doesn't actually do anything specifically they just meet with you and they give you they print out papers that tell you all the things you need to get done and then you need to make the appointments separately something i experienced which i don't know if everyone experiences this in israel but they told me to make an appointment at the secretary when i was at the office for such and such ultrasound or whatever and i went to schedule the appointment and she said i need to call the 24-hour number i think it's like star three whatever something (laughs) anyway so and i can't make it here i said okay and then i called the number when i got home and they said no you need to make it in person you can't do that on here because we don't have any available appointments so then i called the office and i said they said i can't and there was like a whole of course she started like yelling at her coworker in hebrew at some point so i just gave up it's just it wasn't worth it for me in a way it's if you want to be able to like deal with everything and not be going crazy you just have to become a bit more lax on what you're keeping track of because it's just not worth the headache yeah wow that's crazy so when you came here you had a great doctor set up you got all of the missing labs that you had and then you were pretty much getting ready for delivery, right? Because you came here like, what, three, four weeks before your due date? Five weeks, yeah. Five weeks before your due date. And just to backtrack with your pregnancy, the first trimester was like your typical nausea, not feeling good. Then middle trimester was pretty nice. Yeah, it was actually very hot though in Israel. It wasn't the most comfortable, but I'm sure anyone that is pregnant experiences with hot weather. I'm just very lucky that I was heavily pregnant in the winter because that made it a lot easier. Yeah, I had two September babies, so I experienced the third trimester. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Summer, yeah, it was crazy. Still not as hot as in Israel, but it was crazy. You also took a childbirth education course, right? Because I do know that I'm a huge, huge, huge advocate for taking prenatal education, for knowing what you're getting yourself into. And you're like a very smart, intellectual, planned out person. So you were definitely going to take a course. We all knew that. 
What was your birth wish list? How did you envision your birth? What did you want? Did you want to have an epidural? Did you want to have a more unmedicated, intervention-free birth? So I definitely wanted to go as natural as possible. Obviously, I kept an open mind because anything can happen that you're not aware of, and I didn't want to sabotage my health for a natural experience. So I definitely kept an open mind, but that was my goal. For me, I felt that the best way I'd be able to experience it was through being in tune with my body, not blocking it out. Anything can happen, but that was what I felt I wanted at the time. You had a healthy measure of flexibility, which everyone needs when they're having a child, period, in every stage of a child's life. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. So it's so important to have that flexibility that you had, but then you also had a certain goal, a certain conviction, and you did everything you could to meet that goal, meet that vision of birth, which was amazing, right? And you read books and you took a course that fit your philosophy on birth, right? Because there are different prenatal courses. And I think the one you took was more holistic, teaching you how to uh, cope intervention-free if that's what you want, right? And that was really your vision. And knowing you, you're a very high endurance kind of person. You're very active. And in terms of pain and resilience, you're really high endurance because you really need to prepare yourself. It's not It's not just, oh, I don't want to get an epidural. I want to go unmedicated and then just go about your merry way and not do anything to prepare. So you really prepared well. Then you came to the States. The plan was, was that the plan, of course, <laughs> didn't pan out but the plan was was that I was going to be your doula and I was so excited about it and a few things happened that precluded me from being your doula (laughs) I'm still so upset that I missed your birth first of all your hospital which is in the state of New York required doula certification right and um, because of the pandemic right so because of the pandemic there are visitor restrictions and governor cuomo in the state of new york issued an executive order that every birthing person may have their partner their support person and if they wish a doula and different hospitals took that to mean different things and many hospitals in new york began to request doula certification which is like unprecedented because the doula industry is unregulated, meaning to say there's no set criteria that doulas have to meet in order to become a doula. Anyone can just say that they're a labor coach or they're a doula. I can open up a doula certification company tomorrow and decide what I want to teach doulas and then just certify them. That was kind of an unprecedented thing to ask for. Like I've spoken to doulas who have been a doula for 10 years and they said never in the history of their work have they ever been asked for their doula certification. And not every hospital asks for that. Like I work in a hospital in Connecticut, but it's part of a health system where there are hospitals in New York State as well. And when they were deciding what they were gonna do, they decided to just say a doula is someone that functions in the capacity of a doula. They don't, they weren't exactly. Gonna, they weren't gonna ask for certification. I don't understand. If somebody's not certified, they're not allowed to help the person out. Obviously the person in labor is coming with somebody that they trust. And that's the main thing is that they're gonna have the team that they need. So it only, it matters if they have a certification or not. The point is, is that they're helping that person and that's it. Right, they were gonna function in the capacity of a labor coach. And I also feel like it creates a health disparity among people who have money and who don't. In the past, someone who couldn't afford a doula, they would just take a sister or a friend or or an aunt or a mother. Exactly. Now we're creating this healthcare disparity where people that can afford a doula, 
they can have the doula, they deserve the doula, but someone who cannot afford to pay a doula, which is very costly, very worth it. A good doula is worth every penny, but it's very costly. Anyway, all of that aside, I'm a labor and delivery nurse. I have some tools in my toolbox to help cope and to help support uh, mothers who are giving birth. So the plan was, was that I was gonna be your doula. But then I called your hospital manager who told me I need doula certification. So I said to her, but like, I'm the advanced form of a doula. I'm a labor and delivery registered nurse. She said, you know what, I know it's ridiculous, but unfortunately you do still need to have doula certification. And she told me, she says, go online and there are all these one week doula courses online, two week doula courses online. And now with the pandemic, their requirements are looser. And she said, she said, between me and you, the mothers of the patients of the woman giving birth, they're taking these online courses. Which I personally know somebody whose mother actually did that. Somebody, my friend's sister gave birth and she sent a picture of her mother in the delivery room holding the baby. So I said, oh, they're letting mothers in now. I got very excited because it was in the same hospital as me. And she said, oh no, my mother got a doula certification. It was super easy. Yeah, and it's cheaper than hiring a doula. Probably, yeah. A lot of these doula programs are like, you know, $250 or something online. So like I said, there's no uniform criteria that someone needs to meet in order to become certified as a doula. Anyway, so I spoke with the manager of the hospital you were going to give birth in. She she agreed with me that it was an absolutely ridiculous requirement, but that was what was going to be. So then the hospital that I work at has a doula program within the hospital where the doulas are hired. And I work with these doulas and I help train these doulas so I went to the doula coordinator of the program and had a conversation with her and you know she wrote a letter for me about me being the one to train doulas and I'm a registered labor and delivery nurse so we were going to go with that and I'm kind of happy in a way that it worked out that you had an official certified doula because now I think about it the amount of times you told me they asked for a certification how many times every checkpoint We went to the front desk, they asked for a certification. We went to the registration desk, they asked for a certification. We went upstairs to a waiting room to get into a labor and delivery room and they asked her for a certification. And once we were in the room, the nurses that were on shift asked her for a certification. I don't know how they thought she got to each point unless there's a lack of communication. I don't really know what was going on, but that happens, yeah. And they asked you, did you say they made like a copy of it also? Yeah. Wow. They were very intense about it. Wow. It's so interesting what hospitals start to prioritize, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Not to mention, I was very clearly in advanced labor and they were taking a lot of time to do this. And I was having contractions every minute, under a minute at that point. So I was literally lying over a birthing ball in the registration room. It was very clear what was going on and they still were asking all these things so that's crazy and then you were already starting to dilate at like 37 weeks and by close to 38 weeks you were like three centimeters 80 percent of face you said the baby was low and to me effacement matters more than anything else even more than the dilation if someone is 80 percent effaced then there's like a 98 percent chance that they're gonna have their baby before their due date you were due the day that my kids are going to have midwinter vacation and we pushed that off in anticipation of the baby coming but then as you got closer and you were further dilating i said you know you're going to have the baby before uh, most likely and then i was gonna you know the kids were gonna have nothing to do and 
Tovia, my husband, was working, and I was just going to be all on my own here. And we had the opportunity to go to Florida on a pandemic, uh, a pandemic compliant kind of vacation and just for my kids to get away. So I said the week before your due date, I told Tovia, I said, just, you know, book the flight because she's going to have the baby this week. She's three and Which 80%. I did to clarify. One minute. We'll get to that part. Okay. We'll get to that part. So I said, all right, so just book the tickets based on the clinical presentation. I did it with a, with a, in a calculated decision way, you know, because I had to meet my children's needs as well. And we didn't know if we were going to go, but based on your clinical presentation, I said, you're going to give birth before your due date. So let's do it. We booked the tickets that, uh, for your actual due date. And every single day that week, I was, you know, had my phone nearby the entire time and just waiting for it to ring and to call. And each day you didn't call and my heart lurched a little bit more, but I didn't want to tell you anything because I didn't want to make you anxious, feeling like, you know, pressure, like you have to give birth and I didn't want to create that anxiety. My plan wasn't to like just ditch you. It was like, okay, you're going to give birth sometime before your due date and all will be well and you won't have that pressure. And then came Thursday. I was sure because your baby was also very small for gestation. They, um, well, uh, before baby's born, they call it intrauterine growth restriction. So your baby was measuring smaller than I think uh, 10% of babies, which is what meets the criteria for diagnosis. And sometimes that's an indication for induction, not always, but sometimes it is. And based on how you were presenting and close to your due date, I was kind of thinking it was a possibility that your doctor would say you need an induction. Um, So I waited for your appointment that Thursday. And then after your appointment, you called me. You said, listen, the baby's ready to come any day. Uh, Your doctor said you didn't need an induction at this time. At that point, I was like, okay. Also, I have to backtrack the week before when you went to your doctor, you started feeling contractions for like a day or two, right? And like, yeah, and and a bloody show and being dilated and 80% effaced. Again, all of this. Everyone thought I was going to labor any second, like everyone. Yeah. And and all of this I took into consideration also when I made that decision. I said, okay, you know, you're, you're contracting a little bit. You're having a bloody show, which is a very good indicator for cervical change. Oh, and to clarify, my sister-in-law also at 38 weeks was two centimeters dilated, 80% effaced, and she went into labor and gave birth a week early, just like you predicted predicted what happened with somebody that is that dilated. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be that 2% that'll give birth after um, their due date. So then Thursday evening, I called you and it was the worst thing in the world because I didn't want to make you anxious. I didn't want to make you upset. and, And this was really the plan. And I was upset myself because... I wanted to be there so much also. So I told you and you totally rode with it. You were so kind and nice about it. I felt terrible, but you were so good about it. It really worked down the end anyway, so. Even though I'm still upset that I missed the birth, but okay. (laughs) Sorry. So you were due on Sunday and this was the Thursday before your due date. By Friday morning, everything was in place already. You had the doula hired and you paid a deposit and I was still kind of hopeful that maybe somehow it'd still make it to the birth. And I told you I can, I can push off my ticket. And you said, which is so understandable that you don't want that pressure. You don't want that stress. And that's not good for giving birth to have stress of like, you have a certain timeline. And once they would let me in, we wouldn't be able to switch out with another doula. Right. So like if I had to run to a flight, then you would just be 
wept hanging. So every Shabbos leading up to my due date, I would get tremendous anxiety that I would give birth on Shabbos. I don't know why I decided it was the worst thing in the world to give birth on Shabbos. For those who are not affiliated, Shabbos is the day of rest in the Jewish religion and we have a lot of restrictions such as not driving a car not using technology for matters of health you can um, override any of the restrictions but it just still makes it a little bit more complicated you just don't want to have to deal with that whole thing right so i was very anxious about that every week and because i was very anxious all my friends kept telling me you're first sure gonna give birth on Shabbos just because you're so stressed out about it lo and behold Shabbos morning before my due date at 7.30 in the morning, I start having contractions. Not only did I start having contractions, my contractions were a minute apart. They weren't very strong. They felt like period cramp early contractions, but they were a minute apart and they advanced very, very quickly. Because your cervix was ripe already. You were faced, you were dilated a little bit. And when a cervix is ripe, once you get that labor going, your uterus is sensitive to the oxytocin and it's it's going to go into full bone labor. Like it's not going to start and then for the first 20 hours just be super light cramps. Right. Also, the doctor told me that the reason why it's important to know how dilated I am and how faced I am is because of how quick I'll go in labor. He said to me, the reason why I need to know is because when you call me and you say I'm in labor, I'm going to tell you to come to the hospital a lot quicker because I know you're already pretty much, you have a head start. So it did, Baruch Hashem, thank God, go very quickly, which worked out for me because you live in Connecticut. And by the time my doula got to the house, we pretty much left an hour later. I thought I was going to shower, we were going to relax, but very quickly we realized I wouldn't be able to withstand a car ride for much longer. So we bounced. I called my doula pretty much right away just because I wasn't 100% positive. I don't know about most people, but I was in denial. I wasn't really sure. A lot of people are yeah, in I denial. Yeah, like that's a thing. I wasn't like really sure. Also, it was Shabbos, so I didn't want to just like be Michal Shabbos, even though they say, even if you're not sure, you're supposed, still supposed to do it. It was very weird. It was Shabbos morning. I picked up my phone and I called my doula. Also, because I just hired her like a few days ago, she also didn't really think I was going to go into labor on Shabbos. Nobody, she never really had like a Shabbos maybe one other Shabbos labor delivery before. And I called her, she picks up and she's like, hi. She sounds very surprised. I'm like, so I think I'm in labor. So cliche, yeah. I'm not sure, but also maybe my water broke a little bit. I'm feeling a trickle. I'm not really sure what's going on. So she told me to go for a walk and call her back. So I went on a walk and pretty much by the time I was finished the walk, I couldn't keep walking through the contractions. I had to lean against a pole or whatever in the beginning i was talking through them walking through them and then by the end it was a 40 minute walk i couldn't do that anymore and the whole time they were all a minute to less than a minute apart so my so, mother was freaking out and she's like you need to go to the hospital right now i'm like i don't need to go to the hospital right now she said yes they're a minute apart which means you know you're gonna give birth any second i was like but they're not very painful she said everyone feels pain differently and i said there's no way that this is the pain of labor this is how they describe geula and all these things there's no way this is the pain of labor this is not what this is not advanced labor yet after you took that walk when you started to feel like you couldn't really walk through a contraction you had to stop and you couldn't talk through a contraction that's pretty much the signal of active labor for most people there is about one percent of people who whose pain nerves whose pain receptors are a little different actually interestingly enough and they do have a lot less pain in labor they tend to um but the majority they 
feel pain like you did. Yeah, spoiler alert, it definitely was not, that was not advanced labor. <laughs> um, yeah, so I called my doula when I got back and I described the situation, how I was in advance, I was advancing. And she came, she lived in Brooklyn, she lives in Brooklyn and I live in Queens, so she got there 45 minutes later. I ordered her an Uber. When she got there, I had advanced even further at that point. So we were laboring together with a breathing ball and eventually I decided to take a shower and then we realized I need to get to the hospital. This was probably at around 11.30 and I started having contractions, very mild contractions at 7.30. I was very nervous because my husband, we were debating if he should go to shul or not. And he was like, I'm not going to shul, no way. I'm like, are you sure? Like, I just started labor. There's no point, you know, you should probably just go to shul. But happens to be, as I was leaving to the hospital, the Uber pulled up. I was running out the door with a suitcase and everything. And my father was coming back from shul. So it worked out because if we decided we were going to the hospital, my husband wasn't back from shul yet, I probably would have been freaking out. So it worked out. And it's so important to have your partner's support, to have your husband's support, wouldn't you say that? A hundred percent. Everyone has different experiences in labor and I've heard many times that you get very angry at your husband during labor and whatever, but I personally did not have that experience. The doula was very helpful. She supported me a lot, but when it came to the end, the pushing part, actually my husband was I found him to be very helpful. Oh, so I'm I guess so proud. because I guess I just yeah have a bigger relationship with him than I have with my doula. So yeah, and it's special, you know, when you have the baby, when he's there to see the baby. That's like an amazing thing. So yeah. and you need a team. You need your husband, and for many people, you need a doula that's there with you continuously. I believe in that a hundred percent. I think. You have a good doula, it can be incredible. And then you got into the Uber around 11.30, and I'm sure that the car ride even put you in even more Probably. pain. Yeah, car rides are really bumpy car rides. They they just, they get things moving and shaking. So you got to the hospital. When we went got to the hospital and we were going through the registration process, I was already in advanced labor, so I was laying over the birthing ball. My doula was helping me. And there was a woman that was also very heavily pregnant in the waiting room, and she was sitting next to her husband. They were very calm. And the person doing my registration asked her while I was having a contraction, oh, what number baby are you? And she said something like three. The guy commented, oh, yeah, you could tell this is her first time <gasps> to me and said, don't worry, by your third time, you'll look just like her. Turns out she wasn't even in labor. She just had some spotting. So obviously she was sitting there very calmly because she wasn't in labor and she was not experiencing contractions. Flash forward, I gave birth two hours later. So as the doula was leaving, I told her to tell the people at the desk, by the way, that woman that you were saying, oh, it's her first time, she gave birth two hours later. So clearly she was in advanced labor and you shouldn't have said that. That kind of ticked me off that they said that because <sighs> any woman, even if you gave birth a million times, when you're in advanced labor and you're already seven centimeters dilated or something like that, you're gonna, I wasn't screaming, I wasn't crying. I was calmly breathing over a birthing ball. I yes, I was not sitting with my legs crossed and my arms crossed over my lap calmly in a chair because I was in active labor. That's so condescending and you don't tell that to someone who's like in labor, but obviously it was like what a security man who probably doesn't know much about labor and delivery even though he thinks he does. Yeah. I mean, speaking from experience, you're 100% right. You were acting like a textbook woman in labor, whether it was your first or whether it was your third. Seconds and thirds will scream maybe sometimes even more than first. So, uh, 100%. But also, I wasn't even screaming yet. I wasn't screaming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you got past all the checkpoints. You're in triage. Or did they, no. they sent you straight to a labor room? They sent us to a waiting room for like five minutes and then to a labor room. 
They looked at you. They did one over, and they're like, "Okay, you know, do not pass go. Do not collect a hundred dollars." Yes, I mean, I was contracting under a minute in between. They were trying to ask me questions, and I could not finish the answers because I was having contractions every minute. Oh, and another thing is that we called my doctor to tell him I was in labor on the way to the hospital, and the emergency number that you call when you call the office didn't go through it went to like the the office reception desk that was closed because it was a saturday and when my doctor came to the room he said hey why didn't you guys call and then my husband said we did call it's not working he said that's a problem but that was another interesting um caveat yes exactly so you got there you're they didn't know that you were coming right we, we tend to like to know in the hospital we, mm-hmm. we do get prepared we get notification with each patient so they didn't know that you were coming you showed up and um they called your doctor pretty much right away when you told them who your doctor was yes and then they started they put you in a, a room mm-hmm. and then what happened so they put me in a room they asked me if i wanted epidural at that point i did not so i didn't know you were supposed to say like if you might want one to say not now but maybe because then they'll put you on an iv right away i just said no so no but it's good because you really didn't want one i think that as soon as you say you might want one in their heads they're i mean many times i do see this in in their heads they're saying okay she's not going to do without it because like i said if you prepare yourself and you say my goal is not to have pain relief and you prepare yourself then it's very different than i'm not sure if i want an epidural or not we'll see right so they changed me into a hospital gown and put me on the fetal monitor looking back i would have tried to get to the hospital sooner because at that point my pain level was that i could not sit still laying down in a hospital bed so they couldn't get a good read for 20 minutes so they never actually let me get up and the pain was very hard to manage laying down and I couldn't while I was with my doula and I wasn't laying down and we were doing pain management it was very very euphoric I think it was painful but I wasn't in distress I was actually feeling like really feeling good with myself and in a groove with the labor and then when I didn't have the environment where I could do pain management or just breathing and not laying flat on my back the whole time, it became a lot harder to also emotionally cope with the pain. Yeah, because you're not in your own environment. So your relaxation levels, your stress levels go, uh, you know, shoot up and then your relaxation levels really like uh, you're not able to relax as much. And relaxing is so important for labor and being in your own environment is so important for labor. And you felt purposeful, right? You felt like you're going, like, like running a marathon. It's not comfortable to run a marathon, but you felt purpose in that you were getting closer and closer to having your baby. Right. So then they asked you to stay on your back, which they, you know, you have to make sure that the baby is okay. 100%. 100%. And it worked out. What ended up happening, just like, just fast forward for a second, was that the baby's heart rate the baby's heart was in distress, whatever you want to call it. The baby's heart rate was dropping. And because of that, they had to take certain measures during delivery. But had I, for some reason, been really aggressive about not being on the bed or whatever, they wouldn't actually have known that. And God forbid, something could have happened. So right. at the end of the day, it was good that they did that. But I will say it was very overwhelming also because when I came in, there were like three nurses and they were all asking me, doing different things. One of them was on one side taking my blood pressure. The other one was doing something else. The other one was asking me all these questions while I was having contractions at this point, probably 30 seconds apart. And I couldn't actually answer any of the questions. So I would just ignore them and they would be like, hello, hello, while I was having a contraction. And I'm like, I can't tell you my birth date right now. I'm sorry. Look at my medical file. I don't know. It's a limitation of the hospital system. 
These are like, you know, rules and regulations that have to be done. But if you think about it a little bit more rationally and logically, then we can hold off on, you know, asking you when your last menstrual period was. Right. And like, by the time I gave birth, our COVID tests hadn't even come back yet. So we couldn't even go to postpartum. We had to stay there. And we hadn't gotten, gotten any appropriate work done anyway. So they were asking me the questions after I gave birth. So yeah. they could have just waited, yeah. in my opinion. But yeah. Well, whatever. some things are important to know, like what number of baby this is, right? And how many weeks pregnant are you? But then other things like when was your last menstrual period? And was this baby planned? And are you sexually active? And what's your... You right. <laughs> and on my insurance information, which I also gave at the registration desk, but they were still asking me. And the, that It was ridiculous. Even my doula, my doula kept telling them, like, stop asking these questions. She's clearly an active labor. Another thing is that my doula was very adamant that my doctor be the one measuring me to see how dilated I am. He'd been measuring me for the past few weeks, so he knew just how my body works and stuff. But for some reason, when the resident came in and she requested that my doctor do it, she said, no, we don't do that here. And ended up not working out because when she measured me, she actually measured me wrong because because like you mentioned, my baby was smaller. So my doctor explained that when you're 10 centimeters dilated, it's basically just feeling the baby's head, not necessarily the right. centimeters. So when I'd actually been very advanced, she told me I was something less than I was because she didn't know that my baby was smaller. So how dilated were you again? When I came in, I was around six or seven something like that yeah and it's not a linear progression I always say so just because you were six centimeters and it took you six hours to get to six centimeters doesn't mean that it's going to take you another four hours to get to 10 centimeters you can go from six to ten in 15 minutes there's no like special chart that's going to predict that and like you said if a baby's head is smaller 10 centimeters doesn't necessarily literally mean 10 centimeters it means that your cervix is no longer there and that the baby's head's ready to be born through the birth canal that's also more likely why you went faster which is again something i predicted because your baby's smaller your baby's just going to be able to descend faster and then what happened it's all such a blur at this point. I gave birth, I think, two and a half, maybe three hours after I got to the hospital. I just remember a lot of screaming. At some point, I said I want an epidural. Also, another thing, it was very hard to cope with the pain because they never let me get out of bed. So... Isn't it interesting how it's kind of like a cascade where now you have to be laying in bed, whereas before you were able to cope and... Now, because you are, you don't, you're not able to cope as well. So then you say, yes, I want an epidural because you can't cope as well. It's just interesting to me. You know, I I think we have a lot of fine tuning to do to really honor a woman's preferences. And I always say with the monitoring, we have to work together with the laboring woman and not make the laboring woman work with the monitoring. Right. And they knew I didn't want one originally. And um, when the second I said, maybe I want epidural while I was very clearly in very, very, very advanced labor, I think it would have been correct for them to be like, well, look how far you are. Are you sure? And, 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 and the second I said it, she was like, okay, great. And she just like went to go get whatever. But happens to be that by the time I wanted an epidural, they said, oh, well, you need to get half a bag of fluid in you. I didn't even have an IV needle in me at all. <laughs> Mind you, it took them 20 minutes to find a vein anyway. <sighs> um, so that also they said, oh, well, your blood pressure was high when you came in. And we're sure it's probably because, you know, you were in pain. It's not anything bad. But because of that, we have to take blood tests. And then the anesthesiologist has to review the blood labs once they come back. Right. So they take a few tubes. One of the tubes is called a CBC, like a complete blood count. And they look at your platelets because they want your platelets to be a normal level before you have an epidural. And um, I, I imagine that they figure they're drawing blood off of the IV usually is what happens when they put the IV and they just draw the blood. So it's one prick. And they figured because your blood pressure is high, they'll take an extra tube to look at any markers that may indicate preeclampsia. 
Um, so that's, that's a great thing that they did. But they were going to have to take blood anyway that they probably did through the IV. I don't know if you remember. Right. No. So I don't think what they did was wrong necessarily. It's just in that moment when I wanted an epidural because I can no longer handle the, handle the pain now. It wasn't like I don't think I'll be able to handle in the future. It was now I couldn't handle it. And knowing it was going to take another like two hours till I get an epidural was not easy to cope with. But Sounds like you were in transition. And I like to say anyone in transition wants an epidural. That's exactly what my mother says. My mother said, you should have listened to me. You know, the second you say you want an epidural, that means you're about to give birth, which is what ended up happening anyway. But so by the time the anesthesiologist came in, they said I have to sit still to get the epidural. Sit still was like, that was a joke. I could not sit still. They said it's not going to work if you don't sit still. I tried my best. I could not sit still, but they somehow managed to get the needle in and whatever. They said it takes 10 to 15 minutes to take effect, which I heard, but logically did not process because I kept screaming, I still feel the pain. And the doctor was like, yes, because it takes 10 to 15 minutes to take effect. Two minutes into the epidural, meaning it had not yet taken effect. I don't remember like what my brain was, where my brain was, but I kept saying the pain's not going away in between contractions. And I just kept saying that because it, it wasn't. Um, and the doctor said, do you feel like you need to push? And everyone I hear says, you know when you feel like you need to push. Everyone that talks about their labor says, if you just, it just feels like you need to use the bathroom. But for me, that's not how I felt. And because everyone was like, you'll know, I was like, I don't think I need to push because it doesn't feel like I need to push. The way I describe it is, you know, like when you bang your funny bone, that split second, that pain, that's what I felt in that area, like down there, but like continuously. But to me, I didn't think that felt like I needed to use the bathroom. So I said, oh, no, I don't think, I don't know. So he's like, let me just check you. This is two minutes into the epidural. The epidural medicine had not taken effect yet. He checks me and he says, oh, of course, you're 10 centimeters dilated. And I was like, I'm 10 centimeters dilated. I was like freaking out. He's like, yeah, you're 10 centimeters dilated. It was very, I was like the first thing I was so mad that I got the epidural because it never even had time for it to take effect anyway. And once he started pushing, they shut it. So it was just, it was frustrating yeah and and i think that it would have been nice if they would have checked you right before right you got that epidural just to confirm that you really were just still six centimeters and had some time to go but if they would have seen that you're nine and a half centimeters and possibly told you no you're almost there you're almost there right you think that maybe you would have said okay okay this is almost over then i can get through that last little bit it's always a good thing to know beforehand that if that was your plan and you're really feeling a lot of pain sometimes it's nice to be checked or i have to say it could be that when you sat up for that epidural gravity works wonders and sometimes we have someone who's like six centimeters they sit up for an epidural and just that baby's head goes right against that cervix and makes that cervix disappear so you got your epidural and then what happened next so, I mean, it never actually really took effect. Um, and you were checked and you were 10 centimeters and you felt different than the classic, you're gonna feel like you have to make the biggest poop of your life, which is not abnormal. Plenty of people feel that way. Majority of people will feel like your friends told you, but not everyone. Right, and that was me, so I wasn't actually sure if I needed to push. So he said, okay, with the next contraction, you can push. So I pushed and they were looking at the monitor and they saw that the baby's heart rate dropped very low when I pushed, so they didn't want me to push on my own. They wanted me, the baby to descend naturally. So he said, he's gonna turn me over on my side, give me a peanut ball in between my legs so that the baby can descend on his own without me needing to push. So he said, when you feel contractions, do not push. That's so awesome. Your doctor said, let's use the peanut ball. I don't hear that often. He's an amazing doctor. I'm I so him. happy. But I must say that not pushing when you need to push is very, very painful. 
very very painful and also they said you can't scream through the contractions because that's gonna put your baby into distress so not only can you not push um you also can't scream to help with the pain so i kind of just laid there and breathed as hard as i can as i could it was very 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 difficult the longest 15 minutes of my life mm-hmm. and then after that he said okay you can push when i saw the baby descended naturally but the baby's heart rate was very low. I did not know this at the time. They didn't tell me anything, thank God, because I would have been really freaked out. But he did tell me, I'm just letting you know that there's going to be a lot of people in the room, which is apparently something they have to say when there's going to be like a lot of people in the room. I had no idea what he was talking about. I thought he said there's, I thought he meant like, you know, when they want like medical students in the room and you're supposed to say no medical students. I was not in the right mind to be like no medical students. I had no idea what he was talking about. That's what I assumed. But when I started pushing, a lot of people were in the room. And that's because the pediatric team was there because the baby's heart rate was very low. And in case the baby needed any form of resuscitation, they were truly needed. It wasn't just medical students coming in, even though it wasn't medical students. I just didn't know what he was saying. You weren't in the state of mind to understand what's going on at all. Thank God, because if I would have known, I would have been very, very scared. Also, another thing is that she said she was very impressed with the doctor because he didn't give me an episiotomy even though they wanted to get the baby out as fast as possible he gave me a chance to push him out on my own he said she said he was literally holding the scissors like he was ready to do it but he saw that i was able to push the baby out on my own they did use vacuum to get the baby out quicker but i pushed for very little for maybe like three pushes before the baby came out also the baby was very small so that that worked to your advantage right but when the baby came out they did not give me him right away they took him he wasn't crying his eyes were like but he was like what his eyes were wide open he was looking around we call that we we call that stunned yeah he looked very stunned he looked very very stunned like what just happened yeah and then i just want to backtrack a vacuum is a like a suction cup that the doctor puts on the baby's head you have to still push but it helps the baby's head descend even more together with your pushes so sometimes they'll have to perform an episiotomy with the vacuum and it's a necessary episiotomy because baby is truly in distress we want to get baby out as soon as possible but in this case you got off nicely because your baby was very small so that did work to your advantage right he was also happens to be that i spoke to him beforehand and i said i didn't want an episiotomy and he says he rarely gives episiotomy unless necessary so i knew that if he was contemplating it it was very necessary but i'm very glad that he gave me a chance and waited so that was nice to not have to recover from an episiotomy so the baby came out they quickly took the baby cut the cord and the baby cried which was really good so they didn't need a resuscitate or anything and then i got the baby but just going back to the shabbos thing it was really nice that it was shabbos because there were there were no frantic mothers calling for updates the whole time and we couldn't also call anyone to tell them the baby was born so we just made kiddish washed relaxed and it was really nice that we could wait i hear that often from people who give birth on chavis i think it's so special to bond just as a new unit just you your husband your baby without all of those distractions in this day and age of instant connection communication we all do tend to bombard new couples and hear everything and i think that's wonderful that you you got that yeah. yeah and another thing is that my doula because it was Shabbos halakhically she wasn't allowed to go back until after Shabbos but the hospital said she once we get 
transferred to postpartum, she can't stay. So it was very nerve wracking. But then our COVID test results did not come back for a few hours. So we had to stay in labor and delivery anyway. They couldn't transfer us to postpartum. So she was able to stay with us and she was so, so helpful. She helped me latch the baby. She helped me with just like a million different things, way beyond her doula expected responsibilities. Yeah, Um, and a good doula goes so much beyond just the labor support. Like you said, it's the breastfeeding support, positioning and and just healing and everything like that. And she really was advocating for me the whole time. Yeah. Also, another thing is that when I heard them say while I was pushing that they're going to do vacuum, I I don't know where my brain was. I honestly don't know how I was able to carry a conversation, but I said something like, oh, I don't want vacuum. I didn't know what was going on medically. I didn't know why it was necessary, but I did say I don't want vacuum. So she said to me, if you don't want vacuum, speak up. Tell them you don't want vacuum. She wasn't going to say, oh, she doesn't want vacuum. So I said to the doctor, I don't want vacuum. And he said, I know, but it's like necessary. Neither of us really in the state where we could explain logically why I needed it and why I didn't want it. But it was helpful that I felt like when she was next to me, I was able to speak up for myself. Oh, wait, by the way. So you know the ring of fire thing that people talk about? I actually did not experience that when he crowned. I experienced something else where all my nerves like deadened and I didn't feel anything. I could have been at a beach. I've heard of that. I've heard of that. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it. So because of that, my body relaxed and the baby went back in and I felt everything again. And then the baby crowned again and I felt nothing. And I realized, oh, that's probably what this is. The baby's crowning. I need to push. And I pushed through that and the baby came out and Baruch Hashem, he cried when they cut the cord. So that was good. And I remember the second I gave birth, everything was quiet. The pain stopped. Everything was like euphoric and I laid back and I remember just like looking at the ceiling thinking I did it I gave birth the hardest part is over I remember that was in my brain the hardest part is over things the thing I was so scared about so not sure about is done everything's done little did I know that that's not the hardest part if you told me I just need to experience my labor one more time and for an exchange of like two weeks worth of sleep every night I probably would do it (laughs) I mean I don't know if I would literally but postpartum was also very difficult But I remember thinking the hardest is over, the pain stopped, and then the placenta came out and I was like, can I see the placenta? I don't know why. I love it when patients want to see their placenta. Yeah, I really wanted to see it. So it turns out the placenta was small and he said that's why the baby was small because the placenta was small. Yeah, and and the baby had a short cord, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so, and that's why the baby was in distress all the way at the end. And that's why sometimes, based on clinical judgment, it's not like your doctor did anything wrong, but that's why sometimes um, we induce a baby that is very small in utero um, because there might be a possibility of baby not tolerating labor as well because of a small placenta or a short cord. Right, so he didn't actually know the placenta was small. When the placenta came out, he said, oh, the placenta is small, that's why. But the reason why they didn't induce me is because the growth week per week was on on track right yeah and like i said it's not that your doctor did anything wrong we don't have a crystal ball ever but it was kind of consistent with a small baby you had thereby small placenta and a short cord which was what was making all the trouble so you said you had that split second of silence like all was well with the world yeah I want to do a part two, but your baby has to eat now. We're going to do a part two about your experiences postpartum. And you have a lot to say about that that I think would be super helpful for so many people. But thank you so much for taking the time. You're literally my favorite person in the world. Just don't tell my kids and my and Tovia. Okay, they'll <laughs> probably hear this anyway. Um, Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Rifka Rezo. Looking forward to interviewing you for part two about your postpartum journey. 
Thank you for tuning into the Happy Birthway Podcast. If you're looking to learn even more about pregnancy and birth, check out this episode's show notes for a link to my Instagram account, Yolwedet Academy. Before I sign off, I want to impart the value of seeking care from a qualified and trusted provider. Each person's situation is unique and requires individualized medical advice. The information here is not intended to replace that, but rather to educate you on what questions to ask. My mission is to enable you to communicate your needs and confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience. 